everybody here. This is this is my hardest hardest show ever. I mean, how do I thank someone who's taken me from crayons to perfume? It isn't easy, but I'll try. If you wanted the sky, right, I would write across the sky in letters that would soar a thousand feet high, right, to decoding the gurus with love. But now the time has come for closing books and long last books must end. And as I leave, I know that I am leaving my best friend. I had a friend in decoding the gurus who has taught me right from wrong, weak from strong, from decoding to to good epistemics i mean they lifted me up they reached me when i was vulnerable they were like a virtual friend to me right and and like they they spiritually reached out to me as i reached out to them back in the the dark days of 2021 i mean there was so much for me to learn from them what what can i give you blokes in return chris cavador cognitive anthropologist associated with oxford university matthew brown psychology professor at the prestigious University of Central Queensland and your fantastic podcast with really strong epistemics, bros. I mean, what can I give you in return? Because if you said, 40, I want the moon, I would try to make a start. But I'd rather you let me give me, give you my heart. And so to decoding the gurus with love, I was wide awake before 5 a.m., before 2 a.m. this morning. My mind was cranking, okay, of ways that I could try to decode the gurus. I've done a little bit of that already. And I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not going to overhype this show. I might hit a few singles at best, right? I'm going to hit a double. So, I mean, please don't think of that in in sexual terms. Please, let's not be sophomoric here. This is a highbrow, elevated show, all right? I mean, but how do I thank someone who's taken me from crayons to perfume i mean i got to know these guys so well i mean they, they, i i just seen their podcast grow every day i mean they they take my breath away with their analysis i mean suddenly they're in my life they're, they're part of everything i do they just got me streaming day and night just trying to keep a hold on your cutting edge insights and in your podcast i found my paradise my only chance for happiness and If I lose you now, I think I would die. Uh, You say you'll always be my podcast. We can make it shine. We can take forever, just a minute at a time. But honestly, you blokes, you've been more than a woman. You've been more than a woman to me. I mean, there are stories old and true of people so in love. And I can see myself, let history repeat itself, reflecting on how I feel for your show. Thinking about those people, those gurus then, I know that in a thousand years, I would fair dinkum i'd fall in love with your your podcast again this is the only way folks that we should fly this is the only way to go and if i if i lose you i know i would die oh you say i'll always be your patreon subscriber we can make it shine we can take forever just a minute at a time honestly you blokes you've been more than a woman more than a woman to me all right so How on earth do we go about decoding the gurus? So just think about the high level of discipline and the sense of the buffered self, meaning the sense of distance from yourself and your feelings that you have to have to achieve the level of podcasting success that Matt Brown and Chris Cavanaugh have without blowing up their career. I remember listening to a Patreon video where they talked about their biggest fear, their biggest vulnerability 
for someone writing something to a patron negative, critical to their, to their dean, right? Everyone's accountable to someone, and academics by and large are accountable to a dean. I had a good friend who had tenure, right? And I would warn him about the dangerous path he was on, that he was saying a lot of reckless things. He didn't say them around me. I'd like to think that I had a, a pro-social influence on him, but when he went off on his own to post on social media, he'd say a lot of reckless things that to most ordinary people would sound disturbing and deranged. And I tried to pull him back. I said, hey, you could absolutely blow up your life when you post these sort of things. And he said, don't worry about me, blow. You know, bro, I, I got a great life. Don't worry about me. Well, he pushed it too far, and someone apparently uh, sent uh, an email to his dean, and he, he got fired, and it you know devastated his life. So everyone's accountable to someone. Academics usually have, have a dean, and decoding the gurus, they don't want negative emails about them going to their deans, you know, taking something they've said on a podcast. So they have to maintain a high level of discipline, a high level of reflexivity, meaning you, you observe your own words and your actions from outside yourself. They have to be, you know, fairly distanced from many of their feelings and, you know, basic emotions, basic attachments, right? That, and they have to be able to build a modus operandi, a path forward, uh, you know, a vision for life, a worldview, right? They have to be able to make meaning out of nothing at all but their own brain, their own rational powers. So me, I'm medieval, right? 40, convert to Orthodox Judaism, all right? I'm just wholehearted experiencing my emotions. I feel love one minute. It's a roller coaster. Then I feel hate. I feel passionate attachment to my country, to my people. Then I feel disgust and alienation. I feel like we're under threat by you know, aggressive, assertive outgroups who are outplaying us. Right, so I'm all over the map because I don't have the attenuation, the distance. I don't have the ability to make meaning just out of my own head. For me, meaning and order are something that exists outside of myself and that I can find meaning and order by aligning myself with this greater structure that's in the universe, that's in the community, that exists outside of myself. Right? I, I don't primarily try to conceive and construct meaning just in my own head. Meaning is something that I build with you, right? I mean, everything I do would be nothing if I couldn't bring it to you, to my friends, to my community, right? Meaning is something that I build in my interactions with the people who are closest to me and to a community, my fellow Orthodox Jews. I feel a great tie to Australians, to Americans, right? To, to fellow writers, right? I feel like I am a part of a larger structure, a larger order, and I get order and structure and meaning out of aligning myself with things that exist outside myself. While for the fully developed liberal and leftist, right, meaning is something that they construct out of their own buffered identity, out of their own power of reason, and they can, they can just build it in here, right? They don't have to worry about sexual deviance next door. They don't have to worry about being contaminated by you know, what's going on across the street or at, at work, right? They build their own magnificent structures through the power of their rationality. But uh, as a medieval person, as a trad, as a conservative, as a convert to Orthodox Judaism, I'm much more vulnerable to everything that's going on around me because I don't primarily construct meaning from within myself. I seek to align my life with a meaning that is external to me, that belongs to a community, 
a community that you know believes in uh, transcendent values, in a transcendent text, in, in a God who, who gave a Torah and gave a distinct way of life, and that by aligning with that distinct transcendent divine way of life, we we can then you know build structure, meaning purpose, and you know attach ourselves to the Almighty, to to God. These are all things that exist outside of me rather than inside of me. So yeah, think of this as the Making Love Out of Nothing at All podcast. So one thing I've learned from interviewing thousands of people in my life is that everybody is more vulnerable than you might conceive. So in polished presentations, right, people often look quite strong and invulnerable, but whenever you get to know people up close, you see their flaws, their humanity, and their vulnerabilities. Everybody is accountable to someone. Someone who works for himself is accountable to his leading clients. So Everybody can get in trouble for an ill-advised expression. Now, if you're part of a traditional community, all right, your, your full-hearted expressions right, will take place usually within the safe space of that community unless what you're saying or doing is of danger to the community. Right, you're not going to get into big trouble if you somehow violate social norms. But think about what is considered expertise by the media, by the academy, Right by decoding the gurus. All right, what does it take to be an expert? You have to be number one expert at playing the game of being an expert. You have to be hailed by your peers as an expert. That means that you have to get along with your peers. So much of education, right, is learning to play the game of education. So I got to break you know many stories, right, as a blogger because I was acting like way outside of the the normal rules, right. I was the the outsider. And so I wasn't accountable the to, the, to the normal st- structures. Luke Ford, the outsider. From the fury and intensity with which Luke Ford is reviled in the American porn industry, you would think he's with the FBI or a rabid evangelist crusading against any incursion on family values. Ford, though, is a lowly author who over the past 10 years has made a career of writing and blogging on pornography, and who, on any day, wields an extraordinary influence over the industry unmatched by any news organization. I'm not a crusader against the industry, says Ford, 40, who blogs at www.lukisback.com after making a name for himself at www.lukeford.com but there is very little filter between me and my readers. All right, so this is an article by Tony Castro, June 6, 2007. And in the course of him interviewing me for this article, he mentioned that uh, the mayor of Los Angeles, Tony Villaraigosa, had not worn his wedding ring in many months. And so while he was interviewing me, I was emailing people I knew around City Hall to confirm that this was true. And about, I think before the interview was even finished, I'd put up a, a blog post saying that the mayor's marriage was kaput. Then later is revealed he'd been carrying on an affair with a Spanish-language newsreader. And this, this became perhaps the number one story in California in 2007. So this article by Tony Castro, June 6, 2007. There is no glorification or celebration of the industry, just fact-based reporting on issues and stories that the industry would just as soon not have made public. Over the years, Ford has broken the stories of four porn actresses and one porn actor who tested positive for HIV, a health scare that temporarily shut down film production in the industry and led to some voluntary safeguards and monthly HIV testing. 
Luke Ford, was, way out front with the HIV porn story, acknowledged former New York Times business writer Nick Ravo. There have been other stories that Ford has been way out front with as well. The role of the mafia in pornography up until the late 1990s, especially in distribution, and internet credit card scams of some pornography firms. So I graduated as an Alexander Technique teacher in December of 2011. But if I were to be a fully-fledged member of the largest, most powerful Alexander Technique Teachers Association, which will never happen because of the controversial things that I say on. All right, so to be considered an expert in the Alexander Technique, all right, you have to be acclaimed as an expert by your peers, which means getting along with your peers, which means abstaining from criticism of your peers. All right, that's part of pretty much any professional profession. They have very strict rules about to, to whatever extent you can criticize your, your own profession. So I would have to give up, you know, all sorts of freedom of, of expression to, you know, try to fit into uh, the, the leading Alexander Technique Teaching Association. And it's this way with virtually all professions. So if you want to be acclaimed for your expertise, generally speaking, you don't get to do it as a blogger and as an outsider. Usually you have to work from within the system. And this requires, generally speaking, the kind of buffered identity, that distance from yourself, that self-reflexivity, that careful editing of everything you say and do so as to not reflect ill on your in-group, right? This you know, requires a certain attitude and a certain you know, psychic, psychological, soul-based reorganization of yourself away from a traditional conception of self to the, to the modern self where you're constructing you know, meaning out of your own mind and you're constructing a life based on your your own powers of reason. So to succeed in almost all professions and to succeed in the modern world, you have a much easier time if you're a modern rather than a traditionalist or a conservative. It's just the very psychic arrangements that are required for success in the modern world where the left dominates all of our institutions and almost all of the levers of power, right? Requires a certain, you know, psyche, a certain arrangement of the soul, a certain orientation on life, which is not the conservative one, is not the traditional one, is not the medieval one, right? is not the, the godly one in terms of traditional Christianity or Judaism or Islam. So it makes sense that those people who are acclaimed for having expertise, all right, it's, it's not always because they're so expert. In part, it's because they become so good at playing the game. And those who are not inclined to play the game, so I was looking at a story in the Los Angeles Times about you know, a, good, a good friend of mine in high school, and he learned to play the game. He, he learned to do it very well, and he became a major Republican operative. His name's uh, Rob Stutzman. So always from the, the beginning, you know, Rob, this is him here, Rob was willing to play the game within the rules of the game. He supported traditional institutions, all right, I, I never saw Rob needlessly alienate anyone. He played by the rules of the game. And so it's not at all surprising that he's been so successful at playing within the rules of the game. Now, Rob was also absolutely abhorred by Donald Trump, who did not play by the rules of the game. So Rob Stutzman was a leading anti-Trump Republican in California. Uh, Rob you know, went on to success within the rules of the game, right? He played the expertise game as it is generally laid out. He developed the, the discipline, the reflexivity, that means the ability to monitor yourself. He developed the self-editing mechanism to 
you know, not needlessly alienate people. He managed to gain, you know, some, some distance from traditional attachments such as to blood and soil. He has transcended those traditional attachments of blood and soil. He has developed a much more modern, disciplined, distanced self, developing through the power of his reason and his, his ability to reorganize his soul in, in a disciplined and effective manner, right? He you know, has managed to play the game very effectively from within, and he had all these qualities in high school. I would not be surprised if Rob Sussman has never lost a friend. Like, I've probably lost over a dozen, all right? So generally speaking, conservatives, right, they are much less willing to... To lose a friend, right? They they are much less willing to you know break ties with with the group, right? They are you know much less willing to you know say or do things that are going to get them into you know a great deal of trouble with the people who are most important to to them. Now, I've had this crazy delusion that you know I'm some important writer thinker. And so I've consistently been willing to just follow whatever I, I believe at the moment to be truth, right? I'm, let's be honest, I'm an, I'm an intellectual gigolo. I just fall in love with, you know, a beautiful new idea every day, but ultimately stay, stay loyal to, to none. But uh, Chris Mooney wrote a book on the Republican brain, and he says conservatives are less willing to pick a fight with their friends, less likely to issue a corrective when they need to issue one, less motivated to step out of rank and to call out bogus assertions. Because if you do any of these things, you're going to have difficulty rising within the conservative movement. All right. So if you're willing to play the game as established by the powers that be, all right, you're generally speaking going to be much more successful than you know, rebels such as myself who are just continually rebelling against authority. So both Rob Stutzman and I, we had a wonderful journalism teacher at Placer High School, Robert Burge. And when I graduated Placer High School, Robert Burge wrote in my high school yearbook, I've never had anyone else you know, challenge me as much as you, you have challenged me. And that's kind of how I've gone on to lead my life. Right, uh, here's Chris Mooney discussing the Republican brain. If our political institutions seem more dysfunctional than ever before, that's probably because they're more polarized than ever before. And we're not just talking about our perpetually deadlocked Congress. Even among voters at large, the broad center seems to be rapidly diminishing. One of the most insidious features of the kind of polarization we're seeing in America now is that it makes it difficult, if not impossible, to relate to people at the other end of the spectrum. They seem irrational, detached from reality, outright crazy. There are two books out now that try to parse this phenomenon. They ask the question, if through evolution we've all inherited the same moral intuitions, then how do we end up so far apart on so many basic political issues? We have the authors of both of those books here with us today. Chris Mooney, who, as I mentioned before, is the author of The Republican Brain. And joining us now at the table is Jonathan Haidt, professor of psychology at the University of Virginia and author of The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided. Thanks for joining us this morning. So this, I think this is, in some ways, the most important single issue to, to, to figure out and discuss. Because I fully agree. I have... I have, I have, I have personally evolved in my thinking about polarization in that I used to be very pro-polarization. I used to think that people's concerns about polarization were this bougie establishment elite concern and us, the vanguard of righteousness, <laughs> need to squash our foes. <laughs> and I've, I've now realized that to get change on the scale we need, particularly my sort of preoccupations on climate change, you just can't get it under the current conditions of polarization. You just cannot get it. So the question is, you have to solve that problem first before you solve the bigger problem. Um, let me start with you, Chris. Yeah. The book is called The Republican Brain, um, and it's, it's, it's a really good read. What, what, what is the nature of the Republican brain that makes it distinct, or the conservative brain that sure. makes it distinct from the, the liberal brain? <laughs> well, I think it's, it's rooted in personality. Personality is politics, and there's a ton of research showing that the average liberal is much more open to new experiences, new information, trying out new things, uh, and has somewhat of a different cognitive style than the average conservative. And that means tolerating 
avoiding ambiguity, uncertainty, change more, and it makes them psychological. Okay, so what type of person are they going to put on TV? Again, it requires a tremendous level of self-editing and self-discipline to even you know, end up on TV. Someone who says reckless things, someone who is just wholehearted, all right? Someone who cries about Jesus, someone who gets passionate about God, someone who gets passionate about their people or their soil. All right, they're, they're not very likely to show up on TV except in, in a presentation where they're made to look absolute idiots. So to be on TV, to be an elite, to be acclaimed as an expert, all right, you generally have to embody much of this modern, you know, buffered, distant uh, self meaning is created within your own brain, you know, this ability to powerfully self-edit yourself, to be highly reflexive, meaning monitoring everything you say and do from the outside and understanding how it affects all the different uh, interest groups, right? That, that requires a tremendous amount of self-censorship that uh, most of us with a traditional orientation on life are just not able to do. So, you have to embody a modern, generally liberal left outlook to to move ahead in your profession and to be acclaimed as, a, as an expert. And much of getting an education is simply learning to play the game of education and be willing to humble yourself to color within the lines. Now, I got to break many stories as a blogger, such as HIV outbreaks in porn about L.A.'s first mayor, Antonio Villaraigosa, having an affair because regular journalists were not incentivized to report these particular stories, all right? The first L.A. mayor in 100 years who was Latino, all right, the journalists were not eager to take him down, and journalists found, you know, HIV infections in the porn industry, they found it distasteful. And so many establishment journalists absolutely hated me because I caused them headaches. Establishment journalist Amy Klein wrote about me in the New York Times, September 5, 2008. Uh, professionally, I was causing her problems. He was always hounding our newspaper to cover scandals in the Jewish community. Talking about the Jewish Journal of Los Angeles. As a blogger, he had relaxed standards as to sources, so people with access to grind came to him, voila, he would give them a forum, and then I had to write a news story about it. Well, why did she have to write a news story about it? Because it's not that my sources you know, weren't onto something. It's precisely because I was telling the truth. I was telling powerful truths that were making huge waves within various communities. Uh, rabbis were resigning. Uh, you know, the porn industry you know, went into a state of shock when I was the one who revealed who was the most likely source of, uh, of an HIV outbreak of a dozen or more actresses in 1997-1998. So it wasn't that I had these relaxed standards. It was because I was telling the truth. And that's the, the news media would be writing stories about my work if I hadn't been telling the truth. So almost every professional desperately wants the approval of his peers. And how do you get it? By being highly self-editing, right? By being very disciplined, by being very restrained in what you say, right? So every professional in, in normal, if he's at all normal, right, he has 20 times more of a desire for the approval of his peers than he does to pursue unpopular truths, right? You can, can't expect people, professionals or unprofessionals, to understand something if their income, their happiness, and their social status depends upon not understanding some obvious truth, such as the mayor of Los Angeles no longer has a valid marriage, that he's having an affair, that there's you know HIV outbreaks in the porn industry, that the mafia still plays a significant role in the porn industry, 
all sorts of unpopular truths that I was breaking, that uh, he had predator rabbis who were giving, were essentially given a pass by the powers that be within the, the Jewish community. And these were very unappealing stories that the establishment and the establishment media, you know, did not want to touch. Logically aligned with the scientific community, it's sort of a natural relationship. And so then when you see a divide over reality and what's true, and you see the liberals aligned with the scientists, you should think that's, that's normal. That's and, kind of the way And that's because there's, there's, a, there's a, a kind of personality disposition that is an alchemical mix of nature and nurture, right? Nature, nurture, that yes. produces in people a way of approaching the world that is prior to their politics, but then ends up essentially forming their politics. Yeah, that's and their the politics case. probably feeds back into who they are as well, right? So it's, sort of, it's always in both directions. Um, but partly, partly personality is genetic, we know that. And, um, yeah. And, Jonathan, one, the, the, one place where the two of I think there's some points of contention between your two. Okay, so, yeah, if personality is genetic, right, that means that evolution works on the mind as well. And guess what? Other traits are also a ge a genetic, partly genetic in origin. There are more socially effective personalities. Different groups tend to have different personalities. If you are more open to new experiences than close to new experiences, you will be more socially effective and successful. If you are more intelligent, than average, you will be more successful. If you're more conscientious than average, you will be more successful. If you are more outgoing than introverted, you will be more successful in life, right? If you are lower in neuroticism than average, you will be more successful in life. If you are more agreeable than average, you will be more successful in life. So not only did we evolve to have different personalities, we also evolved to have different strengths and different weaknesses, right? The different groups of humanity all right, evolved in very different circumstances. And they evolved through selection pressure that you know, rewarded certain traits and punished other traits. So it would be naive to expect that all the peoples of the world just have identical gifts. Obviously, evolution has been working on the, all the different peoples of the world, producing different peoples with very different gifts, including in terms of intelligence, in terms of assertiveness, aggressiveness, uh, in terms of life cycle, whether people tend to live a long life or a shorter life, when people start to menstruate, uh, how you know careful people are, how individualist versus oriented towards you know social conformity, right? Different patterns of evolution in different parts of the world on different people have, have produced different groups with different gifts. Accounts, but the, the, the one place that you, sh that you the one place you share, which I think is a profound insight and is drawn from the social psychological research at this point, is that reason is essentially constructed ex post to come up with reasons to uh, justify things that we already arrive at viscerally and, and, and through intuition. And I want to play this clip of Glenn Beck. He's talking about these leaked emails that the that right turned climate gate, which they said completely disproved uh, the consensus of global warming, which of course it did not. And he's explaining why this this evidence is so important. And he, he basically makes the argument for this kind of ex post reasoning explicitly. Here he is. If your gut said, wait a minute, this global warming thing, it sounds like a scam. Well, I think you're seeing it now. We told you this was going on without proof because we listened to our gut. You'd never believe me. But once again, here we are with yet another brand new reality. Okay, that was uh, Glenn Beck speaking. So, got up at 2 a.m., went to work on the garometer, see if I could decode the decoding uh, the guru's garometer. So, point number three of uh, decoding the guru's garometer, right, talking about gurus, is that they tend to overwhelmingly be anti-establishment, right? It is necessary that the orthodox, the establishment, the mainstream media, and the expert consensus are always wrong, at least blinkered and limited and generally incapable of grappling with the real issues. In the rare occasions when they are right, 
they describe by the gurus as being right for reasons other than they think. So you can call this science hipterism, hip, hipsterism, right? A guru can seldom agree with the establishment because it is crucial to their appeal that they are offering a unique insight, a fresh, hot take that is not available elsewhere and may be repressed or taboo. Right? The guru's popularity will obviously benefit if this iconoclastic view happens to coincide with the prejudices or intuitions or the desires of their followers. Thus, gurus are naturally drawn to topics where there is a dramatic split between the expert consensus and public opinion, such as climate change, which pretty much all experts say is real and man-made, GMOs, which pretty much all experts say are safe, vaccinations, which pretty much all experts say are safe, lockdowns, most experts thought that they were, in general, a good idea. So if a guru is merely agreeing with an expert consensus on a topic such as COVID, and there is less reason to listen to the guru rather than the relevant expert. So the guru is highly motivated to undertake epistemic sabotage to disparage authoritative and institutional sources of knowledge. There is a trade-off where the more the guru's followers distrust standard sources of knowledge, right, such as that emanate from universities, the greater the perceived value that the guru provides. So this is at odds with the guru's natural tendency towards self-aggrandizement, which often means inflating their limited academic recognition. Gurus will strategically use ambiguity and uncertainty within their criticisms, providing themselves with the means to walk back claims that get proved wrong or attract criticism or enable them to highlight disclaimers. So gurus will often sabotage other sources of wisdom, which you will see in their frequently fractious relationships with other gurus with whom they may often have alliances of convenience, but they are also strongly incentivized to compete with. Well, if almost all our institutions and almost all the major power brokers in the establishment are dominated by the left, then it makes sense for non-leftists to have a knee-jerk suspicion of the establishment. So when public discussion follows the rules established by the left, then this public discussion, no matter how elevated, no matter how lofty the terminology, no matter if it is published in the New Yorker or the New York Times or in you know, a Harvard study, this discussion is a sham. And Stephen Turner noted back in 1989 for Thomas Hobbes and Carl Schmitt, discussion is always an illusion. It is an instrument of authority, not its basis. So we get the, the news and we get all this discussion that's going on in the news, but who gets to discuss things on prestigious TV channels and radio stations and in prestigious publications is severely limited to substantially exclude traditionalists, people they with traditional ties to God, to blood, to, to soil, to believing in the, the nuclear family. All right, these people are much less likely to, you know, have, you know, a free access or have open access or respectful audience in the mainstream media. So, by and large, it is the left that decides the real issues. It is the left that decides the boundaries for public discussion in prestigious outlets. And so the left, by and large, decides on who are the real experts. So it makes some rational sense for those not on the left to rebel. So just read an interesting article in the, in the New Yorker. So, oh, come on, mate. So it's about adventures with purpose. It's a group. There was criticism that the group had rushed to post on Facebook before officials confirmed the identity of the remains. Rodney's mother heard about what had happened from a server at the restaurant where she was having lunch. She told her father, David Robertson, that she felt the group had made a spectacle of her daughter's death. 
AWP claims that it contacted a distant relative who lived in another state before making the Facebook post. We can't keep every family member in the loop, Lysak told me. Rodney's ex-boyfriend... So remember, there's an enormous audience, there's enormous fame to be gained from playing the true crime game. And the more exciting, the more dramatic, the more conspiratorial you make your presentation on true crime, the more you try to make the case that uh, you're being lied to and all sorts of horrible things are being covered up, the bigger your audience, the bigger your poll, the, the more prestige you get, the more women you get to sleep with, the more money you make. But you are falling into a conspiracy rabbit hole where what you're doing is really bad for you and for other people. But there are a lot of incentives to do the wrong thing. And you see this in right-wing talk radio and right-wing punditry in general. Choose the group of clout chasing. But most people greeted the team members as heroes, lavishing them with hospitality. We couldn't pay for a meal, one of them told me. Law enforcement agencies had devoted nearly 20,000 hours to the search for Rodney. And AWP said that it had found her within an hour of putting a boat into Prosser Reservoir. Lysak liked to say that AWP's job was to locate people underwater, not to determine how or why they'd ended up there. But in interviews, Bishop and Lysak insisted that Rodney's death was suspect. It doesn't add up, Bishop told Fox News Digital. It reeks of foul play. The team retreated to a cabin on Lake Tahoe, where the editors rushed to put together a video. Former AWP team members told me that they fought with Lysak and Bishop over the content. Lysak characterizes it as an open discussion. It would have been better to just be like, here's the facts, we found the missing girl, one of them said. Instead, the video, which was titled, How We Found Kylie Rodney, Murder or Accident, seemed designed to stoke speculation. In it, Rin discovers Rodney's body in the car's rear cargo compartment, which he calls suspicious. The video also included a lengthy interview with the roadside assistance driver about his interaction with the bizarre couple. Some viewers seized on his description of the young man accompanying the distressed woman, thin, with brown hair poking out from under a black giant's cap. The description resembled Rodney's ex-boyfriend. I was like, dang, man, this is going to throw those true crimers into a whole nother frenzy, the former team member said of the video. In an interview with a group of true crime YouTubers the following week, Lysak was coy, suggesting that more information might be released later. There's an entire other theory that it would blow your mind if I even told you, he said, then added that the man the roadside assistance driver had seen was a positive match. The YouTubers received the news as a bombshell. Oh, wow, one said. Oh, my God. So a lot of audience, a lot of money, a lot of prestige, you know, a lot of sex to be had for hype and for, for promoting essentially conspiracy theories without factual evidence that uh, end up doing a lot of harm to innocent people. Said another. Lysak's intimations circulated in the true crime community, where there is a tendency to assume that the official story of a tragic death obscures a more horrific reality. Engagement-driven platforms thrive on drama and twists. With those kinds of incentives, it's tempting to see every death as a murder, every murderer as a serial killer, and every investigation as a cover-up. 
but the Nevada County Sheriff's Office soon told reporters that it had ruled out Rodney's ex-boyfriend as a person of interest. At the time of the party, he appears to have been hours away in Napa Valley. Other search and rescue experts pointed out that it was not strange that Rodney was found in the back of her vehicle. The engine-heavy front end typically sinks first, and a person trapped inside will often clamber to the back to escape rising water. Fisher, the private investigator, tracked down grainy video footage from a wildfire camera overlooking Prosser Reservoir. On August 6th, around the time Rodney's phone went dead, it showed a pair of headlights moving erratically toward the reservoir near where Rodney's car was eventually found, then vanishing. In October, the Nevada County Coroner's Office declared that Rodney's death had been an accidental drowning. The official conclusions did not dissuade everyone. Robertson said that the family members continued to receive harassing, humiliating phone calls from people who believed. So this group, Adventures with Purpose, does a lot of good in that they find you know, dead bodies, uh, missing vehicles. But by hyping things that are not true, they also wreak havoc, which is very much like a lot of uh, live streamers and, and pundits. They had a role in her death. He quit social media, changed his email address, and stopped answering the phone at the family business, a rustic lodge. The family ended up closing the lodge and moving elsewhere. Ryan Upchurch, a comedian and country rapper with more than 3 million YouTube followers, has been a particularly persistent conspiracist, insisting variously that Rodney's family had faked her disappearance and that she wasn't even real. On Facebook, AWP acknowledged the official findings. But its murder or accident video is still up on YouTube. It does not mention that Rodney's death has been ruled an So Yeah, think of the incentives of someone doing a show like I'm doing right now. Right? The more I can convince you that the experts are wrong, the establishment is wrong, that the official story is wrong, that they're lying to you, and that something much more sinister is going on, the much bigger an audience I can gain, the more money I can make, and the more you know, promiscuous sex I can enjoy. But if I were to do those things, it'd be really bad for me, it'd be bad for my emotional sobriety, and it'd be bad for those who listen to me. Accident. Definitely smells like a conspiracy, a recent commenter wrote. Lysak told me that he stands by AWP's handling of the case. I still feel it's foul play, he said. Last February, Lysak's cousin, Christy, was sitting in a doctor's office, scrolling through Facebook, when she saw a video about a group of divers who had solved a cold case. She clicked on the story and was shocked when Lysak's face appeared. They hadn't spoken in years. I thought, this cannot be him. There's no way that can be him, she told me. Christy is a pseudonym. Christy described her family as... Your typical happy outer shell with that deep, dark inner circle that nobody knows anything about because everybody has just been taught to keep it quiet. When Christy was nine or ten, she says, Lysak, who is about six years older, raped her. There was a lot of abuse in her family, she said, but he took it many steps further. As an adult, Christy largely... So a lot of people become famous, like uh, this bloke became famous, all right? They wanted fame. But then with fame comes all sorts of, you know, embarrassing information. And uh, now he's, he's charged with, you know, raping his six-year younger cousin when she was, what, nine, ten, ten years of age. He had a 
Now, a noble operation in many ways, adventures with purpose, where they would recover bodies and missing people, missing cars. Uh, but they'd also hype a lot of their findings to get more traffic, more money, right, more attention. And they wreaked havoc on dozens of innocent people, very much like talk show hosts and pundits and, and live streamers, because of all the incentives are to hype that there's something much more sinister going on under the surface of the official mainstream orthodox story or presentation. All right, this is uh, Chris Mooney here with Jonathan Haidt discussing the Republican brain on the Chris Hayes show. Now, th this is highly uh, ridiculable, but what you are both are saying is that actually the research and science says we listen to our gut and then we come up with reasons, right, John? That's right. So uh, what we've seen for a long time now is that the Republicans are better at moral psychology than the Democrats. And, you know, George Lakoff was saying this, Drew Weston was saying this. Uh, the left tends to cling to this idea that if you just, you know, if you construct the message vehicle in the right way and put the ideas and the evidence out there, it will go into people's brains and change their minds. And that's just not the way it works. Um, so, you know, Beck and uh, Colbert and many Republican strategists understand <laughs> you've got to speak to the gut first. Uh, but one of the points I want to make is that while I fully agree with Chris, Chris has done a great job surveying the literature. I want to give him a stamp of approval. He is Thank not cherry-picking. He is representing the current state of thinking about politics and personality. But the one point that I really want to make is that um, morality binds and blinds it binds people into teams, and then on those teams, they look for evidence to support what they want. Both sides do it. And the key thing that I want to introduce here is we all do it around our sacred values. So if we go back 20 years, I would have an easier time finding denial of science on the left than on the right. But you can't see it if you're on the left. But in my own field, in psychology, uh, because the left really sacralizes all these issues about race differences, gender differences, those are so scary that on the left there's 30 or 40 years of more than ambivalence, denial of heritability, IQ, uh, uh, innate sex differences. So and what Larry Summers ran up against exactly. in his comments That's about right. women in science. That's right. I would really but, urge people, if you just Google, the, Google Larry Summers, women in science, if people would read the transcript, it is as nuanced and careful as a person can be, especially when talking about a field that's not their own. And so this discussion took place 11 years ago. Jonathan Haidt has moved well to the left. And he now doesn't want to talk about uh, the role of genetics in intelligence. And it's bizarre that the left reacted so strongly to it. But well, it's the same it's not, it's, it's not bizarre. Exactly. It's not bizarre, actually. Well, I, I want to explain why it's not bizarre right after we take a very quick break. Okay. Do you know you have more nerve endings in your gut than you have in your head? You can look it up. Now I know some of you are going to say, I did look it up, and that's not true. That's because you looked it up in a book. Next time, look it up in your gut. <laughs> Stephen Colbert giving us a, a, a brief gloss of, of, of a central thesis here. Let's talk about this point of contention because Jonathan, you're saying, uh, look, there's, we all have moral, we all sort of morally reason in the same way, or we all end up in teams, and then we reverse engineer um, uh, reasons to believe in what our team predisposes us to believe, what they believe, and that cuts across left and right. And you're saying, no, actually, there's something distinct right now in the nature of the both personality and yeah, there, there are probably you know different psychological and genetic and, and cognitive predispositions between different groups, including between different ideological groups. Okay, I did a lot of work this morning on trying to decode decoding the gurus. So think about how we assemble a, a worldview, all right? It's not just a pursuit of truth. It's also erected on a basis of self-interest, right? And these interests are not just material interests for, for money, power, fame, and sex but they are often deeper, broader, and more subtle. So people will see the abortion issue, for example, as simultaneously a pragmatic issue, a symbolic issue, an emotional issue, an emotional representation of states of what is you know, real, states that they find reassuring or threatening. So different people find different things reassuring or threatening. And so the interests in this dispute are in 
how much they see their own way of life valued. So people with different kinds of lives are differentially threatened or reassured by different beliefs about the status of embryos. Those who are dedicated to a nuclear family and raising children right, see abortion very differently from people who are leading a sexually promiscuous life. And most people have an interest in, in a belief in, in a public policy that validates them and their way of life, reassures them about the kind of lives that they have chosen. And so the people who get on TV and who write in the most prestigious journals and those who are academics at our most prestigious institutions, right, they have a vested interest right, in abortion being you know, freely available because they have dedicated their lives to the pursuit of their career. And uh, usually, you know, family comes in, in second. They don't generally hold to a traditional perspective on life. So all politics, all worldviews have an emotional core. And this emotional core usually revolves around a sense of injury, a sense of justice denied, right? a sense of right and wrong, a sense of agony. And so different people you know, experience the world differently, and then this leads them into very different ways of life. And so those who determine expertise, right, those who determine what is true, right, those who determine social policy, generally speaking, are not from a traditional perspective on life. So where do you even get the funding to carry out the science to establish truth? Right? Might the way funding science works, such as by peer consensus, distort truth? Right? So what are the realities of modern science? You need a lot of money. You need a lot of money to fund a laboratory. That means you need a relationship with funders. There needs to be some sort of alignment between the aims of the scientists and those of the funders. So in the face of intense competition, right, this work of alignment falls on the scientists to a much greater extent than it does the funders. That means the autonomy to try to do science to establish what is true is limited to what can be achieved with massive funding. So there are all sorts of temptations that arise within these funding relationships. Right? There is a temptation to claim impact, to overpromise, to overstate the policy relevance of findings, to sacrifice the pursuit of intellectually promising lines of work to those that can be funded or those that will be popular or those that will get you prestige, right? to produce work that is marketable to funders but scientifically trivial, to leave the task of voicing skepticism to other people, so that you don't hurt your chances at funding or at prestige, you don't hurt the feelings of your peers, to neglect the tasks of intellectual integration and reflection that don't have impact and don't get funding, do just enough to meet the demands of the funders and perhaps not dig deeper or in directions other than what the funders want. So you have all these temptations to do things with, to get funding that are inimical to the pursuit of truth. Right, having a bias becomes rewarded and funding, and funded. Right, if you can get findings that confirm what a funder wants, right, you'll get more funding. If you can confirm the results of the powers that be, right, you're going to have more success, more prestige, and more funding. So contemporary science is basically following a crowd. Researchers will jump onto an approach or to a topic because it is a good strategy for getting funded and getting kudos from the powers that be. University research officers then facilitate this. So the structure of support for science all right, provides incentives 
that overwhelm the pursuit of truth. And so science can't basically police itself. Right? You need the marketplace, investigative journalism. You need uh, the legal profession. Right? You need uh, government regulation. Right? Because science is unable to control itself because it is so incentivized to sell out to whoever will fund them. So you got the Theranos scandal. Right? Did the scientists you know, break the, the Theranos scandal? Right? This startup company pitching a supposedly revolutionary blood testing technology. It was not uncovered by the scientific community. It's not uncovered by scientists or academics. It was not uncovered by the Food and Drug Administration. It was uncovered by the investment community and a crusading business journalist at the Wall Street Journal. Right? The relationship between a leading Harvard chemist, right, the head of the Harvard chemistry department, and the Chinese Communist Party was not uncovered by scientists or by Harvard but by the FBI, right? The poor quality of a tremendous amount of social science studies, right? It's not, you know, usually being exposed by the elite publications or the elite academics or even by peer review, right? It's being exposed by, by those renegade professors and, and those with a commitment to science who are willing to risk their reputations to point out, hey, the emperor has no clothes, so decoding the gurus says our specific focus is the subset of gurus who make liberal use of pseudo profound BS referring to speech that is persuasive and creates the appearance of profundity with little regard for truth or reference to relevant expertise. Well, the most prestigious institutions in our country decide in large part what is considered true and what is considered expertise. And these institutions are dominated by the left. Right, when those who determine, reward, award, and fund expertise and promote what is true are dominantly on the left, does it not make sense for those who are not on the left to harbor suspicion about all this purported truth and expertise? I mean, who decides who gets tenure at a university? Dominantly, it is leftists. Dominantly, you have to meet the approval of your peers. Right? The whole point of all professions is to exclude others and to gain benefits by excluding others and to be punitive towards amateurs, but also deviants, right? people who fail to get with the new program. Right? If I wanted to make it in the Alexander Technique profession, I would, well, it's too late now, but if years ago I wanted to make it, I would have to stop deviating, stop you know, voicing unpopular criticisms. So, it was always taken for granted in the academy that appointments to the academy were culturally coded and that merit was secondary. Now that we've got increasing professionalization in the humanities and the social sciences, or at least an attempt at that, right, it has become ever more explicit that to succeed in the academy, you have to get along with the dominant, generally left-wing powers that be. The basic fact of intellectual life right, Stephen Turner here in 2019, is that it does not pay for itself, right? If I wanted to make a living from what I'm doing now, virtually all the incentives would be to create something that's bad for you, but creates a lot of eyeballs, right? All knowledge regimes, of which professionalism is only one, need income, and they need support that comes from something other than the intellectual work itself, right? If I did a trash show, with people you know, screaming abuse at each other like that Saturday night Jim Goad massacre, 
right? I could get 100 times, 1,000 times the viewership that I have now, right? If I wanted to do an intellectually rigorous show, it is not going to pay for itself, right? Academics need funding from public universities, private universities, and from grants, right? Very, very, very few. Only the most exceptional people, that those who are public celebrities, frequently by doling out uh, you know, things that sound profound but are actually BS, and only a tiny percentage of people you know, can earn a living from lecture fees and for writing for the public or writing textbooks. So academic life is selective, and the selection grounds for advancement at each stage are not clear except for degree requirements, but they depend on a system and they depend upon peer review. And peer review in the academic market rewards conformity, right? The winners in this game are clever and they are conformist, so they would deny this. And they would point to their minor, very technical achievements as evidence of their innovative thinking. But they can't get too outside the box. They can't be truly innovative or they would upset their peers and they would not get appointed to academic positions. They cannot challenge from within the system, right? The academic system and the professional system have various means of disciplinary enforcement that will make it virtually impossible for a renegade to succeed and then become regarded as a source of truth or expertise. Right? Education is largely education to succeed in the current system. Peer review is an affirmation of hierarchy of following the conformist path to succeed in this particular system. Merit is not a matter of debate. It's a matter of counting, like how you know, many prestigious publications are on your side, how many prestigious peers are on your side. So think about the COVID pandemic, right? What's normal for experts in a pandemic, all right? We've had a lot of pandemics and epidemics, and so there are normal procedures for dealing with them. So what you generally get is a bureaucratic team with a number of contributors, some of whom are scientists, usually about 200, and they get together in, in an act of social construction. They form a singular message, right? It's selected for its relevance, for its importance, and usually selected with an eye towards influencing public behavior to reduce the impact of the disease. Now, this is not science. Right? This is not about research results fresh from the laboratory or the field. This is not the product of a long process of sorting out these results through pre-review and scientific competition. This is a carefully refined bureaucratic consensus. Right? This is a message that is produced through bureaucratic methods, and then it is spoken about as science. Right? But that's wildly inaccurate. Right? These are boundary objects carefully constructed for public consumption that contain some knowledge a great deal of judgment, a great deal of guesswork, and are filled with uncertainties that are hard to estimate. And they have a purpose. They are collated and brought together and united to a singular message to change people's behavior and to protect the various agencies and experts in the event of being wrong. So agencies, experts, and professions want to preserve their trust and their standing with the public. So disagreement is usually aired privately and it is dealt with privately. Right. Bureaucratic infighting is usually kept in the background. And definitely those who are more popular and are more powerful and have more funding get a larger say than others, even if the others are more true. 
So there's a good court case after the Hurricane Katrina disaster. There's an obscure engineering researcher at Louisiana State University who criticized the Army Corps of Engineers, which was responsible for the levee that failed and flooded much of the city of New Orleans. And he criticized the Army Corps of Engineers for its errors. The university was encouraged by its own professors to fire the researcher, who was absolutely correct. Case went to court, and case was settled without a tryout with a payment to the researcher. But the issue is important. Right? The university believed that criticism of the Army Corps of Engineers, even though the criticism was ac- absolutely accurate, would damage the relationship between the university and the federal government upon which the university depended for research grants. Even though the Army Corps was not itself a source of funds, the situation with the CDC is parallel. The main source of funds for the Centers for Disease Control is the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, which received about $6 billion in the 2020 budget. The total National Institute of Health budget is over $40 billion. Right? To get funds from these agencies is a matter of scientific life or death for researchers, and it's a lot easier to get funds if you fit in with the consensus, if you are conformist, and if you give the funders what they want. Institutional makeup of the American right that makes it distinctly and extremely um, hostile to science. So, right. Def- defend so that I, view. I agree with him that everybody reasons based on emotion. And I agree that you can, there's experiments when you can get the left to be more biased than the right if you push certain emotional buttons. So, I agree with that. Nevertheless, I think there's something about the liberal psychology in its affiliation with the scientific community and its willingness to change its views over time, such that you might have some liberal biases, but over time they're going to more find the truth. And I think evolution is a great example. So, for instance, I'm a liberal. I think you can't understand human beings outside of evolution. All right. So Clearly. Yeah, but as a liberal, he refuses to accept the obvious truth that evolution has continued over the past 10,000 years, that evolution has profoundly affected how our brains work, right? Different groups have evolved, you know, with different cognitive and emotional and, and affective structures. And he's all down with evolution, except for when it that leads to the obvious, glaringly obvious fact that different groups have different gifts and different cognitive and emotional structures with different predispositions towards violence or conformity, right? So he claims he's all down with evolution, but effectively he refuses to accept that evolution has continued over the past 10,000 years and that the evolution of different peoples in different parts of the world has produced very distinctive people. And sometimes there are very obvious cues about people that are a you know, reasonably useful heuristic for trying to figure out whether someone is likely to be smart or dumb, whether someone is likely to be you know, violent or not violent, whether someone is likely to be conformist or individualist. So, yeah, big believer in evolution, right, except for when it goes against his own hero system. Maybe maybe three decades ago, I wouldn't have been comfortable feeling that way, but I missed all that, you know, and I'm, and I'm all for it. And the left, I think, has largely changed on that. Well, you have the right. Denial of evolution is over 100 years old. And it's not just, it's not just denial of little things, right? These people think that the Earth is less than 10,000 years old, and they deny, you know, I mean, they deny everything. Right? But, there, everything. but there's also a change over time, right? So that's, 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 that's the, 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 the difficult causal uh, uh, story that you have to tell, right? Which is that we see certain, certain, certain beliefs get worse over time, or certain, certain anti-science postures get worse over time, certain kinds of ideological extremism. And uh, comment in the chat, you can conduct research and not care about peer review, but who's going to fund it? Right, science is no longer a matter of the, you know, the gentleman individual going out and conducting research. Right? Science now is about requiring millions and millions of dollars for funding for, for laboratories. Right? An individual just going out and doing research is highly unlikely 
to you know achieve any resonance in the world with his findings. Right, we're, we're not in the 19th century anymore. This is not the Victorian era where the, the gentleman scientist can just go out and, and do things on his own and have the ability to change the world. Grow more intense. What is the source of of of, of that? Because things don't remain static, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So, uh, so Elliot Blatt has a good shot at me here. Money corrupts all science except COVID science. No, COVID science is also corrupted. I'm not saying that science is useless. I'm not saying that universities are useless. There are some perverse incentives. There, are, there is reason for some skepticism, uh, particularly by people on the right, given that these institutions are dominantly controlled by the left. At the same time, I, I think that decoding the gurus ha- has some good point. This irreflexive dismissal of institutions, establishments, academics, and expertise I don't think is particularly wise, right? So we have to do the hard work of trying to figure out when to take expertise and and science seriously and when to employ greater levels of skepticism. So I want to fully agree uh, uh, with Chris that the psychology does predispose liberals more to be receptive to science. That My own research has found that conservatives are better at group binding, at loyalty, and so if you put them in a group versus group conflict, yes, the right is more prone psychologically to band around and and be, you know, sort of circle the wagons. Hmm. I just want to read one quote because I think both of us are on the same page here that the psychology doesn't tell you exactly what's going to happen. The psychology is just the starting point and you need to look at history. So there was recently... um, a study by Gordon Goshaw, a sociologist, finding that, basically testing Chris's claim, and it found, yes, Chris was right, that the change over the last 40, 50 years is that the right has gone less and less, they've gotten less and less trusting of scientists. Mm-hmm. So that looks really good for Chris's idea, and that's true. But I just want to hear one little nuance on that. Uh, an interview with Goshaw, he said, public opinion on science in Europe and Japan skews differently than in the United States. Mm-hmm. There, skepticism about the scientific community usually comes from the left. Mm-hmm. The reason may be that the issues on the scientific forefront in Europe, such as genetically modified food right. and nuclear power, tend to push liberals' buttons. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing that human beings can do that would not contain varying elements of corruption, right? Human beings are flawed. There will always be corruption. That doesn't mean that you dismiss all human endeavors because there will always be an element of corruption in them. That's interesting. But, well, I think, but again, I think that you can kind of easily wade into a kind of morass of cultural relativism. All right, this is Michelle Goldberg who wrote uh, two lengthy articles about me, one for Salon and one for Speak magazine back in 1999 where everybody's equally irrational. And the fact is, I mean, although obviously you're right, and that was true, I think, in the U.S. in the 70s, where you had a big kind of back-to-nature, anti-empirical strain on the left and right. feminist community. Right. And all- she used to have the most adorable, you know, Betty Boo voice. Right? When, when she interviewed me in 1999, she sounded like the most naive, you know, 16, 17, 18-year-old. But she now sounds much more mature. She probably got uh, voice lessons. All kinds of communities. However, I think there's a big difference between being skeptical of nuclear power or skeptical of genetically modified foods, although maybe that is slightly less rational than skepticism about nuclear power. That's really different than denying an empirical fact like evolution or like the Earth being longer than a thousand. I think that there is, but don't you, you don't think that there's a difference between, you don't think that there are rational and kind of empirical reasons to be skeptical or worried about nuclear power. To me, that's just very different than denying a clear reality. The kind of utter safety of nuclear power is not a reality in the way that the the age of the Earth those radiation, you know, it doesn't travel all the way across the Pacific from Fukushima and kill babies on the West Coast. Like, that's really a safe statement. And, but a lot of people on the left might actually be inclined but to do that. Right, but there's also a danger huge, that nuclear yeah. reactors lead to a Fukushima right. is... Well, um, that's a different issue. But there's also a huge... There, let me just say this. There's also a huge institutional component to this, right? Which, and, and, that, and that to me is key, right? Yeah. We, you do not have huge Democratic politicians running around. Um, in fact, they're all, they're all pro-nuclear power, you know, all, of the, all, all, the, yeah. all the above. We just had a... We the just, left changes, right? We that's, just had a new permit for, yeah. for the first nuclear power plant to be built, I think, in, in, in 15 years, if I'm not mistaken. So 
so so there's a there's a kind of uh, malleability there all right so that's uh chris hayes hosting a discussion about 11 years ago let me go back to ronnie goldman's terrific book conservative claims of cultural oppression on the nature and origins of conservophobia so people who are not liberal and not left don't take liberalism and leftism at face value so liberals you know repudiate the bad parts of, of leftism but they can't repudiate the seeds of that repression which is their sweeping vision of social reform and social unity implemented by the centralized authority of experts so the more left you go the more commitment you have, generally speaking, to centralized authority of experts. And who gets to be an expert? One who conforms and plays the game, right? Not necessarily someone of great merit. So liberals have, you know, very different ordering impulses than conservatives. So conservatives have a skeptical view of human nature, and so they very much want law and order. Uh, liberals have a much more optimistic view of human nature, but it's a human nature nature that has internalized the liberal disengagement from the traditional ties to blood and to soil and to traditional ways of doing things. All right, someone who has the ability to to distance himself from his most immediate emotions. So, liberals and leftists, generally speaking, are hostile to the free market. Right, they want the the distant you know buffered self extended to every sphere of life right they make as their target the essential conservatism of the ordinary american they want to you know remove his authentic roots in blood and soil and you know parents would be highly disturbed to know that it is common practice among pediatricians right doctors for children these days to tell mom and dads to leave the room so that the professional can have private chats with the children about controversial topics such as abortion, premarital sex, masturbation, birth control, gender transitioning, right? So the basic presumption on the left is that the experts know best, that doctors know best, that schools know best, that governments know best what's good for you and for your children, that parents are too ignorant, too traditional, you know, too stuck in you know, hidebound folkways and too incompetent to be left to directly supervise the lives of their own children. So on the right, there's a strong defense for you know parents getting to decide and direct the lives of their own children. On the left, it's much more of a push to have the schools and to have experts run the lives of our children. So we've got the rise of cognitive elites, which is a betrayal of America's original self-understanding as the promised land of common sense. Right? With the rise of the cognitive elites, that undermines the spirit of cognitive egalitarianism, which was assumed would keep the common people from being manipulated by intellectual charlatans of every ilk. Now, liberal elites have assumed this role of bullying and educating and you know, refining and disciplining everybody, including your children. Right? It's liberals and the elites who have the most allegiance to claims of expertise and professionalism, and they increasingly want to manipulate and intimidate ordinary Americans into submitting to a left-wing culture. So conservatives oppose not just the various specific manifestations of left-wing cultural priorities, but the left's general assault on cognitive egalitarianism, the ordinary Americans' general life competence and decision-making capacities, which are generally thought to be the psychological bulwark of conservatism that most people 
have the ability to make competent decisions and they don't need experts running their lives. So you've got secularism, modernism, liberalism, leftism operating in the service of this assault on the traditional and conservative conception that most people are competent to decide things for themselves. So people who are not leftists tend to celebrate religion and tradition, not just for their intrinsic value, but as the common man's defense against this sort of rule by experts. So on, on the liberal left, they you know, increasingly want to educate, bully, and you know, run your family, run the most private parts of your life to have you know, control over your children, right? You can call them groomers. You can accurately call them groomers, not necessarily in the sense that they're out to have sex with your children, but they definitely want to groom your kids to grow up to be disengaged, to have a buffered identity, to have a distance from traditional emotions about blood, soil, nuclear family, God, and, and traditional ways of looking at life. So intellectuals, as we currently know them, overwhelmingly on the left, and their investment is in influence rather than in money. Right? They're not really selfless servants of the public good. Right? They want to make over all of society. They want to change the lives of the mass of the people. They want to change the lives of your children. They want to groom your children to be more modern and secular. They want to make everyone conform to the liberal left model of cognitive rearrangement so that people are more buffered and more reflexive and have more of a distance from traditional emotions and loyalties such as the blood soil and the nuclear family. So today's liberals and today's elites and today's leftists do not believe that ordinary people should be left as they are, but instead they must be badgered, they must be bullied, they must be preached at, they must be drilled, they must have their children removed from their control Right. They must be organized to abandon their lax and disordered folkways and traditional attachments. So this is why intellectuals dominantly on the left so invested in the fortunes of those they deem to be underprivileged. So this badgering takes place through the well-meaning solicitude of the family doctor, not just the stern injunctions of the village priest, but that does not alter the fundamental nature of this project to remake human nature, it is fundamentally a religious impulse that has been transmuted into a left-wing totalizing impulse. So this solicitude for your kids is about the latest iteration of this civilizing courtier morality. It's a sublimated, intellectualized, etherealized version of an ambition that when the left has had the ability, they've carried out their ambitions much more brutally and openly. So Chris Mooney, who was talking here on the Chris Hayes Show, wrote a book called The Republican Brain, and he offers an intriguing physiological explanation for why conservatives are less well-disposed than liberals toward expressive moderation, meaning liberals are much more disposed towards careful self-censorship and self-editing. And I want to talk about how we, if, if you guys are right, how do we avoid a bleak landscape of will-to-power nihilism yeah. in which no one can persuade anyone of anything, and I come to work every day hoping to, like, you know, bring some information to the public, and I'm completely banging my head against the wall, and my life is meaningless. They will rescue me from that right after this break.
Stories from New York. I'm Chris Hayes here with Columbia linguistic professor John McWhorter, also of the New York Daily News, Michelle Goldberg from Newsweek and the Daily Beast, Jonathan Haidt, professor of psychology at the University of Virginia and author of The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided, and Chris Mooney, author of The Republican Brain, The Science of Why They Deny Science and Reality. We're talking about the ways in which people do their political and ideological reasoning, I think is the, is the, is the common topic here. The degree to which there are systematic personality psychological differences between the way liberals and, th and conservatives think about the world, which they're from the research and the literature appears to be in certain certain personality traits are highly correlative with certain moderately. ideological or mi mo yeah, that's a good point. Yes. moderately correlated with with certain ideological uh, dispositions and then how those agglomerate into groups and institutions that pursue a political agenda and the key the key locus or the key insight from which both of your works both books spring is the fact that we don't reason in the way that we, you know, as, as in the enlightenment mode of, I throw out a reason, you throw out a reason, we wrestle with them, I'm persuaded, you're persuaded, then we come to an agreement. No, we have these intuitions, those intuitions are formed by all sorts of things, personality, relationships, our cultural embeddedness, and then once we use those intuitions to arrive at things that we, our values, right, and we say, this is sacred, or this is important, or I like equality, then we, we use our reason to come up with reasons to believe the thing that our intuition tells us. If that is the landscape, what does that do? And I'm going to ask a, a big question that we're probably not going to resolve on cable news. What does that do to the entire enlightenment project? Because if the fact of the matter is we're all fooling ourselves about this whole thing, or I'm fooling. Okay, so the Enlightenment Project is overwhelming a liberal left project because the Enlightenment Project holds that people are basically good and that they can reason their way together, that they can discuss and come to a consensus, and they can you know figure out truth through the power of reason alone. As a traditionalist, all right, I don't put as much stock in reason. I believe that the power of genetics and the power of early imprinting and the power of you know, all sorts of forces and incentives around us of which we may not even be conscious or may not have the ability to overcome, right? These forces are usually much more powerful than our own reason. So belief in the power of reason is an enlightenment project, but it's not a traditional project. Myself when I come on television and try to persuade people about certain things, then what are we doing? I mean, why does it even matter? Why am I ever giving reasons for anything? <laughs> and let's say welcome to Elliot Blatt. How's it going? Uh. Oh, blessings, bro. Blessings. Sorry, long time to talk. Been a little, a little too much work. So, but I'm coming out, man. I'm coming out. I'm coming out. Salute. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, yes, no. sir. Salute, but who do you think is more honest? The left or the right? Who uh, do you think is more comfortable with deceit? The left or the right? I, I couldn't decide between them. So you think it's equal? Yeah. Yeah, I guess we disagree. What do you think? I, I think leftists are so dishonest so often, you know, that they've somehow managed to, to me, it seems like they've, they believe in the nobility of their aspirations so much that their lies aren't really lies. Their dishonesty isn't really dishonesty. And like, to me, I feel like when I run up against it, I feel like I'm just going running up to it against a brick wall and that brick wall will never move. And so I've stopped, you know, I've stopped pushing on closed doors. But I think people, people on the right generally to me seem like they're willing to engage and engage forthrightly. And I don't, I just don't see that on the left. I see, uh, when I see people on the left sort of doing this pseudo where they just kind of 
speak their talking points in very you know broad elliptical uh anodyne terms but they don't actually engage with the substance of an argument and that's to me so i i just that's what irks me about the gurus you know the 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 decoding the gurus boys you don't see it that way no, but what what proportion? So my perception is approximately fifty fifty. But would you say that uh, that that you know, liberals are you know five times more deceitful and dishonest than conservatives? Would you say you know twice as much? You know, how how big of a proportionate difference is there in the honesty of people on the right and the left? Uh, I would say it's seventy thirty. Okay. I think. So there's you know, really I, not a huge difference. Like I, you know, yeah. I perceive maybe fifty-fifty, but I also be fine with seventy-thirty. I, I could absolutely see it that way. I mean, it is an established fact that conservatives can almost always articulate a left-wing position, and very few people on the left can articulate the conservative position. So yeah, in many ways, uh, people on the right have have tools and abilities that people on the left don't. So I, I would not be surprised if you're absolutely right that it's seventy-thirty rather than fifty-fifty. Yeah. Okay. I mean, people on the left are more gregarious than people on the right. I will. I will. I, I will grant you that. But to be gregarious, you need to sacrifice a bit of truth, right? You're willing to let certain things slide, or you know, just for the benefit of harmony. You, you're not. You're just not as you know confrontational. Conservatives tend to be a bit more controversial. Uh, that's not even true. Uh, I was going to say that they tend to be more confrontational, but conservatives tend to be a lot more blunt in their assertions, you know, and this is perceived and ingested by people on the left as aggression. And I think that's sort of a big part of what drives the division. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking out loud. This is this is very tricky stuff. How, how I would understand it is that people on the right are more likely to say traditional things which are now considered unsayable publicly. So people on the right are say more likely to say that uh, you know, same-sex marriage is a travesty, that uh, changing your gender is likely an expression of mental illness, that uh, different groups have different levels of IQ and different you know predispositions towards violence. Like all these traditional taken-for-granted perspectives on life that are now unacceptable to say publicly. So conservatives are more likely to edge towards these basic truths. Yeah, and calling certain countries assholes and, yeah. um, you know, there's just a frank, they're just too frank. And, well, I don't, for me, it's from my perspective, it's not too frank, but... <clears throat> Conservatives are less filtered. They are less edited. They are more authentic. They speak more from traditional attachments such as to blood, soil, and family and traditional conceptions of of life, while people on the left, virtually by definition, are much more carefully editing what they say. Yeah, and I'm told by other people in the Chinese community that it's, uh, you know, if you're in the Chinese community... and you're putting on too many pounds, they'll just tell you straight out you're too fat. You know, there's this bluntness to it that, you know, um, 
even low IQ people can understand and receive the message, you know, and there's something to be said for that. And I think about my own ancestors, my own family on the Italian side, and there was just a very blunt, direct expression of opinion I received growing up, you know, and not necessarily the most polished language, but it does make an impression on a young mind, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that there is something to be said for that. And we've decided that we're all such delicate snowflakes that we can't receive messages that go against our own self-image. And, um, you know, I think that's pernicious. Because most people aren't high IQ enough to receive a more nuanced message. Mm-hmm. What's your experience with HR departments? HR departments are usually run by women on the left. Have, have you had much experience? Um, I have had much experience. I would say it's negative experience, but yes. <laughs> I would receive memos. Yeah. And I would... HR departments are for... They're for and by women, you know? Yes. I mean, I... I recounted to you an experience I had, you know, in the office where, you know, this woman who was my quote unquote manager interrupted me while I was giving the report and I told her not to. And then she just gave me the middle finger, right? In, in the mm-hmm. front of everybody, in front of the middle. Now, you know, it never even crossed my mind to bring that to HR, but had, had the characters been reversed, and I was the one giving the middle finger and I was brought to HR, I would have had to have, you know, I would have paid very uh, significant consequence. So I don't know why I got on that particular topic, but, uh, oh yes, because you asked me about HR, that's why. Well, we, we live in kind of an HR world now. I mean, th- there's more and more repression and editing expected of us, you know, not just at work, but in life in general, in any kind of engagement, you know, with the... Uh, a wider right. group of people. All right. So, so women have been shoehorned into the w- workplace by feminists, and you know, no, let's you know, just red. Here's this. Here's the here's the straight red pill knowledge, bro. Uh, women aren't happy in the office environment, right? And they act out in very peculiar ways, and they they behave very strangely in an office uh, environment. And they just create havoc and trouble and they're always stirring the pot. And, um, you know, the, the advent of HR is basically an expression of this. So uh, just women aren't comfortable around the way men engage with other men. And they find it, you know, rude and abrasive and threatening, whereas men find that funny. And so the entire phenomena HR you know, center is, you know, can be traced to feminism is not making news here, obviously. And also none of us are evolved to work in offices. We're not evolved to spend a great deal of time inside. We're evolved to spend you know, a great deal of time outside. Couldn't be more true. I agree hundred percent. Yes. It takes, it takes a few years in the office to realize that. And it's, in it's, uh, you know, in it's stark brutality. But yes, you're absolutely right. That's what's been great about this COVID, this work from home. I mean, it's really revolutionized um, my life personally, but it's wrought havoc on um, 
uh, downtown San Francisco. That's for sure. Um, ah, but 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 what about the, the loss of of socializing that that comes from uh, working in an office? Also, people tend to be more conscientious, to be more open minded, to be more considerate uh, when they are outside of their house. When people are at home, they tend to be more slovenly, sloppy, and uh, hateful towards our groups. Oh, what? I'm sorry. I'm, wow. <laughs> it was making sense, and then I'm like, what, bro? Uh, out groups? No. Um, I think people, well, my perception is that, well, I'll speak for myself, that working from home is such a gift. It's such a boon. It's such a, um, you know, delight that I work harder at my job, right? I, I, I take on initiative. I, um, I try to do more and better work because I'm working from home, because I want the company to succeed, because I'm happy with my arrangement. So the, the socialization pro, uh, point that you make up is not true. So socialization, to me, in the office is so artificial that it's, uh, it's painful. Right, you're thrown together with people you have no nothing in common with. This, in my experience, anyway, that you know, except for you know a few blessed exceptions, um, my, my experience with my workmates has been miserable. So over, so overall, I would say that my experience with with people at work, at, at in an office, has at worst been fifty fifty, but. Probably, I, I've so often enjoyed people that I, I've worked with. I, I suspect it's probably 60% positive to 40% negative. What's the ratio of uh, positive to negative that you've experienced? It's like 10-90, man. 10, right. 10 positive, 90 negative. Um, I wish there were the other, because I, I go into the situation hoping it's going to be positive, right? But mm -hmm. it, invariably, it just... All it takes is one person, believe it or not, to sort of mess everything up. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely true. Absolutely true. You know, and if you're going, you know, my advice to anybody uh, considering hiring somebody, if you have to hire somebody in an in-person setting, is you need to prioritize their emotional um, temperament mm -hmm. and how well it fits with you and your groove above all else. Because skills can be learned. But emotional temperaments are really hard to adjust once they've been formed. So, um, you know, that's one thing I've learned. Let me read to you from the Wall Street Journal here. People feel more extroverted, more agreeable, more conscientious when they are in other places compared to when they are at home. People feel more disorganized and chaotic when they are at home. When people spend time in social environments, they feel more compassionate, more open-minded, and more kind compared to when they are at home. That does not ring true to you. No, that's not true at all. No. No, I, I feel like, okay, so when I'm with other people, I have to sort of double and triple apply filters to myself, right? That really, I have to keep my id under, you know, you know, cat cat manacles and uh you know i have to keep my head really suppressed uh in you have a, to keep in your, your, your pants on and your hopes down yeah. rather than pants <laughs> off hopes up 
Yeah, you go into this sort of crouch, you know, crouch mode where you just you're even, you know, I can't tell you, like you're just afraid to talk to anybody because you just can't predict the reactions and like, um, um, I, I digressed. I'm sorry. Well, you don't want to go into work with a loaded gun in your pocket. <laughs> no, for sure, bro. Yeah, that would be embarrassing. Um, so uh, you have to. Yeah. Hey, when when Deep Left Joker was here, did you take him to any of the more degenerate parts of town and show him the the corruption well, that's endemic in the system, the the cottaging? And... I, I picked him up. I picked him up in the heart of the degeneracy of San Francisco. But we immediately beat feet. We immediately turned tail and went, you know, out of the city into the into the Marin headlands, into the into the woods, basically. And, and he enjoyed you, that very much. Was there any degeneracy going on in the headlands and the woods? I didn't take him to that part. Okay. <laughs> you know, I was trying to keep a really uh, anodyne visit. Um, but we went up into the nicer parts, up into the hills, you know, to the high, the higher IQ and the higher elevations. Um, I should maybe reach out to Deep Left Joker. I haven't spoken to him. Uh, we he did, you know, I he did finally, you know, acknowledge my existence and thank me in an email. But I kind of feel like I should reach out to him and sort of just do like a an unpacking of the experience and a digestion, a, a decoding, a decoding. Favorite, yeah, because uh, I it's a weird thing. Like, uh, and even Ed Dutton was in San Francisco recently, and I reached out to Ed Dutton. And I offered to be his chaperone for a day, you know, man, mm-hmm. uh, I don't even know if he saw my message. It was like in a comment on a, on a live stream. It was on the, in the comment section of a live stream he put on, but now he was in San Francisco and, um, you know, I started sort of thinking about you know, carving out a niche for myself as sort of the you know, tour guide to the live streamer. Right. So every yeah. live streamer who needs to document the, the decrepitude of San Francisco needs to actually contact me and be and, you know have me lead them around because you know that is one of the few areas of expertise that i do have hmm. now do you what are you drinking this evening oh i'm having a nice margarita luke i, I don't know what what constitutes a margarita I just oh, so yeah so the, the core of a margarita is tequila it's tequila okay. ice uh lime juice a little uh grand manier um and and um yeah it's a smidgen of sugar it's a really nice way to unwind bro i know you don't take this this disgusting habit no no judgment here this is the judgment free zone yeah so um i've been still planning my next mushroom escapade i haven't done mushrooms in like over a year now and i feel like i need to do it again oh oh what did you think of like you know, I came up with, you know, my brain on love or my brain on gratitude or my brain on, on caffeine. So what, aside from drugs and psychedelics and mushrooms, what things have the most powerful effect on your brain? High altitude. Skiing, high altitude, skiing and high altitudes. On a so what, what effect does high altitude have on your brain? It, it just blows open your horizons both physically and mentally it just clears out all the cruft 
um, in your head. It gets you out of your head and into like pure being, you know, Mm. um, it's, it's totally the best. Um, I wish everybody could do that. I wish everybody could just experience the joy of skiing at high altitude, right? There would be no more problems if everybody did this at least once. And, and what about the effect of coffee? What effect does coffee have on your brain? Um, it gets me going. I like it. Um, sometimes I drink it even if I don't need it. You know, I always drink it. I basically have it every day. It's sort of a ritual, you know, and sometimes I'm probably better off for not having it, but I do love it. I love it very much. It's quite tasty. And what coffee, about... when well, mm-hmm. coffee when well prepared can be quite tasty. Mm-hmm. When prepared right, yes. Yeah. Uh, what about your brain getting outside as opposed to being stuck inside? What happens to your brain when you're outside? Oh, yeah, night and day. Outside is far preferable. You should spend as little time inside as you can. Is You should only be spending your time inside at night when you're asleep. And, you know, make it your business to figure out ways to spend the rest of your days outside. That's why I love California so much, because you can always be outside. Yeah. You know, and so for all California's problems, it, that is just such, such an advantage in life. You know, uh, no. to always have. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Well, to always have like, you know, just like a nice, balmy 68, 72 degrees, nice sunshine, some puffy clouds, you know, that, just to have that experience always at the ready for you. It's just such an advantage. That's why people love to live here. They'll, they'll endure lousy politics to happen. Am I landing any points? Am I hitting any singles? Am I decoding, decoding the gurus this evening? Yes. I mean, well, I think so. I mean, I think you have, you know, an appreciation for the gurus, but also some criticism of the gurus. And I think you're trying to work out where you stand vis-a-vis the gurus. Mm-hmm. Matt and what's his name? And Chris. you know, Chris, yes. And you know, I, I, I think, you know, they're definitely on the liberal side, and they take their liberal outlook as being natural, and deviance from their liberal worldview, from their worldview as being unnatural or alien. So, I don't think they're as, you know, aware of their own biases as they should be, if they're going to talk about objectivity and clarity and things of that nature. Do you catch what I'm saying? Yep. 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 Um, what effect I didn't drink. So what effect, if any, does alcohol have on your brain? It's like, a. uh, it's like, a. it's like turning down the pressure valve in your brain. It's like, you know, it's mm-hmm. like letting out some steam. Like you turn it off and the steam starts to hiss out. Um, so it just reduces the pressure that sort of builds up during the day. And, and uh, uh, speaking of reducing and, the pressure, what effect does hardcore pornography in high definition have on your brain? <laughs> I, I wouldn't know. I've, I've built a wall around that stuff. Like Wow. Wow. I don't, I, I, I'm never even tempted to look at pornography because I know where it goes. You know, I just find it very distasteful. You know, 
I grew up in New England, Luke. I, you know, I have sort of these very Puritan impulses that I, I can't necessarily, I can't excise from myself. So, um, you know, I've looked at pornography when I was very young and so forth. But when was uh, the last time that you jacked off to pornography? Well, we're friends here. This is this is a safe space. I like. No one's watching. 18? It's. Wow, you haven't struck off to pornography in uh, like. I don't need pornography, bro. I got an imagination, bro. Wow, I I don't need pornography. You're a a righteous man. (laughs) I'm not. I'm not trying to be righteous. I'm just saying, like, you know, when you when you've got the sort of galaxy brain that I have, Luke, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you can just you can just invent whatever scenario Mm -hmm, you need mm -hmm. and just have it at the ready, bro. What are your favorite types of scenarios? Is there like a particular scenario that you find most alluring? Like, what is the erotic minefield that you have to thread? Oh, you know? I'm in a multi-way situation in Japan with Colin Liddell. That's my key. Se- that's my uh, love map, bro. That's your that's your love map. Yeah. So, what do you think? Is that sick? Yeah. No, this is judgment free. There's no sick or, or healthy here. Like we all have needs, we all have, we all hurt. You know, we all love, we all yeah. have wounds. Like our, our right yeah. love maps, the ways that we try to heal our childhood wounds. Like what, what childhood wounds do you think that you're most trying to heal through your love map? Um, a very cold, distant father. And so do you find like uh, imagining yourself splooging on a woman's face? Do you find that like healing? Yeah, I know that would just drive the old man crazy. Powerful. Powerful. I mean, we're speaking truth here, bro. I mean, tough truth, hard truth, but but a powerful truth. Like not yeah. easy to swallow that truth. <laughs> not easy to swallow. Like yeah, two to wipe it off your face and you know, just to yeah. continue on. Uh, so I don't know why all this porn talk. Why do I listen to all this porn talk out of you, Luke? Every time I call in, it's, uh, you trying to tell me something? I, I'm just bonding, man. You, I mean, yeah. it's what blokes do. I can't talk to you about sports. So Are you in a risk cat in spirit or what? <laughs> um. So what do you think of my decoding s- series? Uh, have any of them, like, landed with you? No, I, I've liked them all. I've liked them all. Um, okay. um, I wasn't aware of the ga- the sort of gay dimension of Bronze Age, per- Bronze Age Pervert. Mm-hmm. I didn't. And so is he, he's Jewish and Romanian, or the Jewish part is, is up for debate? or Yeah, I think the Jewish part is up for debate. Yeah. So, um, but the gay part is not. So, what's his name? Closing the American Mind, Alan Bloom. I didn't realize yes. that he was an aristocratic spirit. That was neat. Yeah, he died of AIDS. He died of AIDS? Yeah. Because that was a very popular book um, yeah. back in the late 80s. Um, and it was from the right. And it was, mm-hmm. it was uh, you know, disapproved of by present establishment. Yeah, and still, you know, so so the so, so the whole homosexual dimension to the right is 
is taking me by surprise. <laughs> I was not realizing that that was a thing, as the kids say. Why do you think the right wing is so gay? <laughs> is there no, like an I mean, inherent connection between anal sex with blokes and, you know, a right wing orientation on life? Does it like reorient the, the pelvis and have the you know, downstream effects in your ideology? I, I suppose, I guess in the, I mean, well, okay, there's the right, and then there's sort of like white nationalism, which is mm -hmm. sort of the right, but it's, you know, it's a bit orthogonal at the same time. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the, the old saw about, you know, one third feds, one third uh, gay, one third uh, Nazi. Yeah. Yeah. But I didn't. So, okay. I've been listening to this guy, um, Venkin, this Israeli, who he, he has endless, endless lectures about narcissism. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I love those. I, I've listened to like dozens of them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, Sam Vaknin. Vaknin, yes. And he's very, very intelligent, very thoughtful. Mm -hmm. And he seems to have made his whole life's work to be about decoding narcissism. Mm -hmm. And he does a really excellent job of it, and I can't yeah. really follow it. I have to listen to it multiple times to retain it. Yeah. But um, it does, listening to him just reminds me of so many um, experiences and people I've made and why I couldn't just fathom their behavior. And he does seem to have some insight into that and why, where narcissism originates from and how it expresses and but it's uh, it's a very useful thing to subscribe to if you haven't subscribed to him already. Oh yeah, I've listened to dozens of his videos because I also identify as someone with uh, some definite narcissistic tendencies. How about yourself? Are you someone who more uh, has some tendencies to narcissism, or someone who frequently has trouble with the narcissist in his life? Well, I've definitely had problems with nar narcissists in my life, but through listening to these lectures, you know, some of his criticisms of narcissism, you know, they get a little too bit close to home, bro. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, you know, I, I like to think of myself as not being a narcissist. But I, think, I feel like if I'm a narcissist, then everyone's a narcissist. You know, like, or, okay, let's, let's consider narcissism as a spectrum, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, everyone's got a touch, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it, it's to have an ego is to be narcissistic to some degree, right? Well, I think it's situational. That's the most helpful thing I ever learned about narcissism, that there are, there are situations that will bring out narcissistic impulses. It's usually not a condition. It, it's usually a, a situational thing. It's not something you carry around 24-7, usually. But it's what you bring to the, your interaction with other people. Well, in some situations, know? like so you can be like, narcissistic in certain situations with people, but not narcissistic in, in others. Like uh, even when I had, you know, pretty full blown narcissism, I wasn't attention seeking in all my interactions. There were certain interactions where I'd act out and plenty of other interactions where I would not. What do you think the relationship between narcissism and homosexuality is? Like if it were a Venn diagram, I mean, does one cause the other? Uh, no, I think they're probably both symptoms of 
you know, a lack of a normal relationship with your father. So you put it on the father. I've heard people put it on the mother. Sure. Um, Let's throw that in. The homosexual uh, thing, I think, is primarily lack of relationship with the father. I've never known a homosexual who didn't have a very troubled relationship with their father. But uh, the narcissistic thing, yeah, probably, uh, you know, lack of uh, maternal nurture. And so people, you know, grow up very hungry for attention and admiration. All right. So so going back to the original, the, the, the jump off point to this whole conversation about leftists, right? Mm-hmm. Leftists won't even tolerate for a second a critical examination of homosexuality, right? Yeah, generally, they just, yeah. They, you know, it's just verboten. And, you know, I, this to me go is an example of their sort of lack of honesty and their lack of candor and their lack of scientific rigor that they're, they're only scientific about topics that they want to be scientific about. Otherwise, they're back in, they're in their religious hero system. Well, unfortunately, many leftists you know, have great support for same-sex marriage, but they're not so thrilled with when you know, one of their own children has a same-sex marriage. Like they approve of homosexuality and same-sex marriage in the abstract, but when it hits close to home, they're not nearly as happy. Yeah, I, I'd imagine so. And I'm thinking of a particular Facebook um, combatant of mine, quote unquote friend, who, you know, who'll go to a gay pride parade and wear the flag and everything. Meanwhile, he sends his daughter to a Jewish school where that stuff doesn't go on. You know, it's that basic hypocrisy. Um, they want to shelter that, their own kids from the degeneracy. Yeah. But they're perfectly fine for the, you know, the abstract masses to do it as much as they want. Okay, bro. Okay. I'm, speaking of gay, I'm just dying for a fruity smoothie right now. All right, bro. All right. Next time. Shalom. Blessings, man. Bye-bye. Blessings.